Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. I'm Bill Newman, and we are joined in the studio by East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle because this is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. And Madam Mayor, so much to talk to you about today. We're really pleased you could make it into the studio. I'd like to start, if I might, with the announcement made between the last time you were with us and today, which is that you're not going to be running for re-election. This is news to some. I mentioned it to you before we went on the air, and you said, not news. Well, straighten us out. <laughs> um, yeah, so I... Actually, before running, I kind of looked at what I, how I wanted to handle being mayor, what I thought I could do, and had a, a, a vague idea that it wasn't going to be my last job. In 2019, looking at what was going on with the economy uh, pre-pandemic, um, I decided that eight years was great if the voters would have me. At that point, we, were, we had two-year uh, terms, and I'm in the first four-year term, and I feel even more confident with... Um, that decision. I, For small cities like East Hampton, I think it's vitally important that leadership is fresh, on their toes, and ready to go. So the first t- time you ran for mayor was when? Uh, 2017. And that was a two-year term? Yes. And then the charter changed? Uh, no, 2019 was a two-year term. 2021 was a four-year. And that's because of the, of the change charter. in the charter? yep. Okay. So... You say you're not going to run again. This was something that you had actually mentioned years ago, and I think maybe when you first ran or when you ran for re-election and you'd said it, but it struck people and struck me as news. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Because when politicians say, I'm not going to run for re-election, I'm going to term limit myself and all of the reasons why, I kind of tune out and say, yeah, they all say that. But you seem to have meant it. Explain. I, I do, absolutely. Um, came in uh, to office looking uh, for more accessibility, transparency, and economic development. And I feel that I've done work in each one of those campaign promises. Uh, and the next step for East Hampton is to take a good look at itself and decide what's next and how do we use the resources that we've, we've grown over the last, well, six years. And I do believe that that needs to be done with somebody new, with a fresh impression of what's happened. And also, becoming mayor um, in East Hampton, you really have to think about it. It's 24-7. You have to think about the economics of it. Uh, Yes, by the time the next mayor takes office, it'll be $90,000 a year. Um, but you're still working, you know, for pennies on the hour. And folks have to adjust to that, as well as childcare and just having a healthy home life. I was struck by something that uh, Dominic Sarno, mayor of Springfield, said this week when he was uh, last week when he was celebrating his uh, victory in the primary, but a close a close race showing that he has a close race for reelection. But he also had to leave his victory party to go deal with the water main breaks and the uh, polluted water in the city. And he looked kind of tired and said, this is a 24-7 job, and he meant it. And uh, much as I disagree with much of what Mayor Sarno does, that kind of struck me as, well, that really is true, and it's true for all mayors. I'd appreciate how that has affected you and whether that nonstop, unrelenting pressure from being at work has taken a toll. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I figured it would in 2017, 
Um, I saw a window of different projects and places I wanted to see East Hampton go to and talk to a lot of the residents and stakeholders if, you know, what they thought about those ideas. And I put together a platform and project uh, priority list, got in knowing that what I would do for whatever number of years the voters would have, that would be it. Um, And I'm, you know, I might sit in my house at night, but I'm, you know, if I'm not on a text thread or getting pictures for something happened in the city, uh, talking through some different help a department would need, like on a Monday morning, um, that's par for the course. Um, and I, I love it. I mean, I truly do. But I also know that this can't go on forever for me. And there's no balance between anything else. It's May or 24-7. I would be interested to know this from your perspective. On one hand, you have you have fulfilled the campaign promise with regard to term limiting yourself, uh, although it will have been a long run. But you also have opened up the field. That's a good thing. On the other hand, you're a lame duck of sorts. And I'm wondering whether or not that affects how you can and will govern till the end of your term, which is when? 2025. January of 2025. No, January of 2026. 26, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, right. Um, That's a long time, uh, and there are two aspects of that. One is how does it affect your ability to govern as a, quote, lame duck? I'm not sure that applies, but I would ask your perspective on it. It also gives a lot of time for people to uh, campaign for mayor, uh, but that has the downside of internal jockeying, particularly if you have politicians in East Hampton who are running. So give us your perspective on all that, if you would, please. Yeah, I don't see it as me being lamed up for those last two years. With my focus and priorities around housing and infrastructure, those are long game projects. And I feel that I started them and I need to get them well on the way. And it has less to do with uh, new legislation in the city, less to do with like creating new departments. This is kind of like putting a bow on it and getting things ready, quite honestly, for whoever comes next. And what about the internal potential for internal fighting? Because uh, I'm trying to put this in a neutral way. Various people aspire to be mayor, and they will be jockeying for a position in that regard. Um, That's already begun. I mean, that began before I announced uh, and will always be a part of, I would say, municipal life, but, but any elected body. Um, And I just focus with myself on the city and what's best and try to bring along as many people as I can. The better the city does, anybody who holds office or works in the city is going to be a stronger candidate because they're going to understand what the residents want. Any feeling that because you've announced that you will not be running for re-election in 2025, your term will expire in 2026 in January, that you don't have quite as much authority now as you did before you made that announcement? No, I don't think that at all. Let me let me go to uh, an aspect of your your may, mayor term as mayor, and that has been a lot of uh, focus on the schools. It's a new school year. I would be interested to know what your perspective is on the state of the schools in East Hampton, and in particular, I would appreciate an update with regard to what happened with the attorney general's investigation about bias in the East Hampton schools. So um, I'll start with uh, the AG's report. Uh, The AG signed off on that report about two years ago, and I'm happy to say that the most potent part of that report is existing within the East Hampton Public Schools and curriculum. There's a lot of work to to be done. 
Um, and also the city has beefed up different positions to help the school district with the outside of school, with social workers and public health nursing inside the school. Um, our interim superintendent has already adjusted certain things to accommodate students getting a late bus so they can participate in after school activities but had no way of getting home. We're seeing the addition of new curriculums that are more inclusive in STEM. Uh, and I, I feel good about the direction, but it is. There's, there's a lot of steps um, going forward. Um, the opening of the new school uh, is is fantastic. Um, the energy there and at EHS, it feels like everybody is bright and shiny new. Um, we've got, uh, there's a welcome party coming this week for um, the new school, and, and I invite people to, to take a, a ride down there. The selection, or as it were, the non-selection of a new superintendent in East Hampton received a lot of local publicity and national publicity. I don't think we have the time, and I'm exhausted talking about it, or the ability in, on today's show to go through all of that all over again. But where does the superintendent search stand, and has that lack of a hire for the position of superintendent taken a toll on the school system? I think it gave the school system a pause. And we have a set of fresh eyes that came in, in Superintendent Benenda, um, who has just really kind of taken a backseat and let the leaders of the school district go forward with some new ideas, but also more structure as far as the culture of the school. Uh, she came from Worcester, 26,000 kids. So coming into East Hampton with 1,500 kids, she has a lot of ideas that can be applied uh, much more easily and also can engage more with parents and stakeholders. And you're seeing that energy. So I do think that the interim selection, you know, looking back, um, was a great choice for us. Does that interim superintendency, does that uh, bode well for the school system because it's the person is an interim? Or does it mean that the interim has less, again, less authority or less uh, I don't know how to put the moral suasion, given that, th again, that person is term limited. I think that could go either way, depending on the character of the interim. Um, the interim superintendent, uh, Maureen Beninda, is hands-on, is there to not necessarily um, introduce all new ideas, but really sift through what we've been doing, what we wanted to do, and kind of find a middle ground there. So when she leaves the interim position, we've got a stronger school district, and we'll, you know, we're not worried about going back out for a search in January, starting that search in January of 2024 uh, to, you know, with a, a stronger district. Well, the last search for a superintendent ended up with headlines for weeks here and some national publicity over this lady's comment. Mm -hmm. Is there going to be some change in the process so that something like that doesn't happen again? Yes, there's, um, we are going to actually work. We had guidance from the Massachusetts Association of School Committees for the search. And this time around, we'll be hiring a, a consultant to walk us through every step, also help us with questions, but also um, exercises for candidates and doing a different kind of vetting this time around. And a different kind of interviews? Yes. Kind we'll of. have different, I mean, the public interviews are very important but we will have, well, we're going to add some additional uh, types of interview. I, do, I don't know what 
we've talked briefly to different consultants, but made no decision on on a consultant or uh, structure of the vetting. We'll look at that a little further in the fall. East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle, do you have some concerns that the national publicity about what happened with the recent, relatively recent, failed search for a superintendent is going to adversely affect the search for a new permanent superintendent of schools? I don't. I think the the negative impact with the international and national news really, un- sadly... Um, you just upped me from national to international. I forgot that part. <laughs> <laughs> Always helping myself in the morning. Um, I, I think, that, you know, the the just you know unfortunate thing that real effect is on the individuals who when they're going on with their life and doing different things because of different actions they'll come up in that uh, google search east hampton public schools it's small it keeps going uh the local story isn't as big as you see in international national news and it's wonderful too because most people think east hampton is um in the hamptons and in new york (laughs) Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it's a space, but it, it confuses the Google searches for sure. <laughs> well, one last question on this. Does, does, the, uh, does the search uh, uh, play out at all, the failed search play out at all in the day-to-day operations of the East Hampton schools or not? I don't see that effect. Um, I certainly saw that um, effect or... I would even say low-level anxiety over the summer of what it would look like in the fall and with an interim and, and the questions that you brought up. Um, but we started the fall very strong. Um, I was really proud of our uh, staff, the teachers, the paras, um, folks who were providing yummy food for our kids. Um, uh, there were smiles. It Heads up. They were good. We are speaking with East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle. It is Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk, and we'll be right back with the mayor after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. 
Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle on this Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. Madam Mayor, I think this is music to a mayor's ear. Money (laughs) coming from the state, the clanging and the clinging of money from the state for roads of all the things East Hampton could use. I'd put that near the top of the list. So tell us what happened, where the money came from, and what it's going to be used for. Yeah, so we've been doing a lot of road work. Chapter 90 is uh, the state's way of giving uh, cities and towns money to do the roads over. Uh, it's, and you'll see a lot of, in the spring, a lot of paving. Um, the Healy-Driscoll administration has increased their funding uh, with Chapter 90, and that's going to allow East Hampton to do a lot more paving. You'll see it already on Holyoke Street, 141. Um, and we just found out last week that we'll have additional money to pave the rest of Holyoke Street, and most importantly, all the way up um, Mountain Road before the winter where we're hoping cross our fingers. And that's, you know, you, you talk about small things of quality of life or whatnot. You're right. Roads are very important for all re- sorts of reasons, but to get Mountain Road paved is a big deal. And for those of us who drive down the main streets of East Hampton, I don't know how to put this to you. Your roads need repaving. Yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> Union <laughs> Street will be done. Take peace, and we just finished it. Well, let me ask you this. <laughs> yeah. There were news reports, and we talked about it some, about the uh, infrastructure of East Hampton under the roads that needs replacing, and that's a big project. Are you, how does this sequence work? Are you going to pave and then somehow fix the pipes underneath it, or are you going to do the pipes first, which seems to make logical sense? Help me out with that. Yes, we um, the project starts, and we're going, we go under we water, sewer, whatever infrastructure needs to be replaced um, or upgraded, that's all on the city's dime. We have to figure out how to do that. Um, It's one of the reasons why we're building up our capital reserves. So as these bigger projects come, as far as paving, and you see the rapid blinkers um, for crosswalks, that's the state grant. Um, And then underneath is is all us. So we've gotten, it's nice because it happens in conjunction with each other. So we're not repaving new roads. So can you do, I don't mean you personally, but can the city, <laughs> can the city uh, fix the pipes, which I think are over 100 years old in some, some, of them are. In some instances and need to be replaced? I mean, talk about uh, delayed capital improvements. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can the roads be paved above that and then those pipes can be replaced? Or that seems a bit backwards to me. Yeah, no, we'll start with the pipes. You'll see on Union Street, we're just finishing up that process. Uh, We actually just added another big water main to that project down where um, Union hits Cottage Street and Payson Ave, Williston Ave by the pond, uh, did some scoping out underneath and saw that while we were there and things were getting dug up, we should take care of that water main as well. So those will be fixed and replaced yes. and upgraded and, and updated yeah. before the paving occurs? Absolutely. This is a big project that it, we're talking about. $7 million, yes. Wow. Um, and, and that's the one being finished. Uh, we just, well, a year and a half ago, we got um, 
a letter from MassDOT and the feds that we have $13 million to redo Main Street in the same process. So people won't see construction until probably 2027, but the process has begun to re-envision Main Street. We're watching what's happening in North I was going to say. I knew you were going to say something. Yes. You're I, going, re-envisioning yeah, Main Street. Yeah, well, yeah. well, you're getting out just in time. <laughs> <laughs> people will have a lot to say about they that. They do already. We've had a couple of uh, public hearings ab- about what people, you know, want to see and what's important to them. And um, really safer pedestrian and, and cycling opportunities are huge in that part. And slowing people down, those, those roads are really wide. And it seems to me there's some sense, and this is the thing I think about East Hampton a lot, which is there's no real town center. There are various right. centers of the city, but there's no central place in the way that Pulaski Park really is in Northampton. Is that part of the, is that going to be part of the redesign idea for East Hampton? Yeah, and that was a part of how we sold the project with um, to the state and to the federal uh, folks. So we're looking at making it more walkable and, and whatnot. But you also have our uh, the public library is moving to the Bank of America building. You have city space, which is being renovated. And you'll see that s- small shops um, are going to the e- Main Street area. Uh, it's the most affordable. And with good sidewalks and bike lanes, you're talking about a real up in walking traffic as we add, let's see, 79 new housing units downtown. Um, we're really timing this, the infrastructure, with getting housing units um, on the streets. Let me ask you about one other new development in terms of money from the Healy Driscoll administration. You have received, as I understand it, money for firefighting positions in the city. That's news. Tell us about that. So that um, grant comes through the federal government, um, and the the Healy Driscoll administration will do additional or side money if we apply for it. But actually, Senator Markey and Senator um, Warren, we work very closely with their staff. We got in, in total about $1.3 million, and that'll add four full-time firefighters to the East Hampton Fire Department. Really big deal for us. Is this, have these been vacant positions or are these new positions? This will be new. Um, and, and they're very strategically timed. Uh, we're seeing an uptick in EMS calls and uh, mental health calls rather than fires. And we need those hands-on to make sure we can get to everybody that we need. Uh, as well, we have retirements like everybody else. So this is for the first three years, uh, this grant pays for everything for these four new firefighters. We ease them into our force as people are retiring. And when you talk about firefighters... Uh, responding as first responders to various calls. Is the fire department part of this uh, effort to make armed police response less the norm in cases where they're not needed? Is that part of the plan? It is a part of it, and it it has been. I mean, that idea of a community EMS, I should say every firefighter in the city is also a paramedic. Um, And it is a part of the the overall strategy in the city to to get the right help to the right people at the right time. Um, So we're looking forward to adding on. And also, we've been revamping our training and focus of responding to calls. And fire's been a big part of that. We leave it there. We've been speaking with the mayor of East Hampton, Nicola Chappelle, on this Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's good to be in the studio.
The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Maura Healey is proposing using nearly $300 million to infuse the state's strained emergency assistance shelter system in one-time funds. The money would also be used to close a tax revenue shortfall. Healey filed a more than $2 billion budget last week to close the books on fiscal year 2023 and direct new spending into the shelter state of emergency. The state is currently housing more than 6,300 families in shelters, hotels, motels, and other sites, an increase of more than 60% from when Healy took office in January, according to the Gazette. The Amherst School Committee will meet again on September 26 to interview potential candidates for the Amherst School Committee. How anti-racism policies and protections for LGBTQ plus students could be enacted in the public schools are expected to be among the questions asked of the candidates. Residents have until September 20th at 4 p.m. to submit letters of interest for all three vacancies to the town council clerk. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa has introduced legislation to regulate the future of weaponized robotics. You may have seen the viral videos of the goofy dancing robot dog from Boston Dynamics or a similar robot mounted with an automatic rifle in Russia. As this technology evolves and progresses at a rapid pace, legislators are trying to figure out how to keep their constituents safe. Sabadosa's bill contains provisions that would ban the manufacturing and sale of robots and drones that utilize weapons but make exceptions for law enforcement. The proposed law would also require law enforcement officials to obtain a warrant before entering a private residence with any sort of robotics. If passed, the bill would be the first in the country to address these issues. For today, to be mostly cloudy with showers, high 66 to 70. Tonight, cloudy with showers, overnight lows 52 to 56. And the outlook for Tuesday, sunshine and clouds, highs in the lower 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Are you at a dead end when it comes to dealing with that awful joint pain? So was Rick Rawlings. I did a year and a half of steroidal injections in my shoulders, both shoulders. They weren't helping at all, and it was just a Band-Aid. As for the constant pain medication prescriptions... I didn't get any relief. I didn't get any sleep, so I just stopped taking them. I didn't want to get hooked on drugs. But one day... I heard a uh, commercial on the radio about QC Kinetics. Rick called QC Kinetics and learned all about natural biologic therapies, non-surgical treatments that actually help the body restore damaged joint tissue. And it was life-changing. After doing the QC Kinetics, I feel like I have a new life again. Today, my shoulders feel wonderful. My only regret was... I. Wish I had done it sooner. From dead ends to new beginnings. Call today and learn about QC Kinetics long lasting relief. Call QC Kinetics 413 992 5450. That's 413 992 5450. 413 992 5450. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. 
And this is Salman Hamid's universe, which we used to call Salman Hamid's ridiculously large and largely ridiculous universe. Salman Hamid is a professor at Hampshire College and an astronomer, and we are so pleased he could be with us today because there has been so much news about exoplanets, life outside our own galaxy and our solar system, an exoplanet with the potential for life discovered by the James Webb Telescope, or at least confirmed the potential for life, confirmed by the James Webb Telescope. Tell us, Professor Salman Hamid, what is going out there? What is the breaking news from outer space? Well, uh, thank you, Bill. And, and, and of course, uh, don't forget the congressional hearing uh, hearings in Mexico about the mummified alien. Yes, we want to hear about that too. But Which, let, let's start with something. But I actually really like that. Because, you do? Well, yes. Well, you're and, such a skeptic about this. Well, but, but what I like about it is... Like it was on in the front page of the New York Times, and um, and the tone was such a mocking tone. Look, I mean, they are talking. Mean, come on, you know, let's be serious about it. But New York Times has been peddling these type of stories for the last six, seven years. There have been congressional hearings in the U.S. where people have under oath claimed to have sort of like you know uh, seen or people have told them about uh, like extra or sort of like you know alien pilots and so on and so forth. And this was also a sworn testimony, the one for the Mexican mummies. So I just find this, or why I find, uh, I mean, of course, I find it amusing. But what I find uh, instructional is when such stories come from other places, they look a little strange. <laughs> but of course, our stories are right. But what, I, uh, but what I want to contrast that is with this particular story that, Bill, we, uh, you, you alluded to, and that is, an exoplanet whose name is K2-18. This His name? No, that's their the name. Planets. It's, it's <laughs> the, name. It's name. It's the planet's name. name is what? K2-18. But that's not that important. This is a, a small, it's called, it's a dwarf, red dwarf planet, sort of like, you know, these are called uh, uh, sort of like cool dwarfs, which is uh, about 100, 120 light years away. And these kind of stars are cooler than our sun. They are smaller than our sun. And they are the most abundant stars in the universe. Now, around it, uh, Kepler Space Telescope discovered a planet. Uh, and uh, this was, uh, I think, in 2015. And this planet was, uh, is a little bit bigger uh, than the Earth, but a little smaller than Neptune. So this is a class of planets that astronomers call mini-Neptunes. Now, these type of planets, actually. Neptune's pretty small. A mini-Neptune is going to be really tiny. Well, so, so, it, so for example, this particular planet, in terms of mass, it's about eight times bigger than the Earth. Oh, it is. And, uh, and about two times bigger in terms of radius, two and a half times. So it is bigger than the Earth, but smaller than Neptune. So and this type of a planet, actually, this class of planets don't exist in our solar system. So we actually don't know, because we know Neptune is a gaseous planet, Earth is a rocky planet. So with these type of planets like mini-Neptunes, we don't know whether they are mostly gaseous or mostly rocky. So why is it called a mini-Neptune? Well, because it's smaller than Neptune, uh, but it's bigger than Earth. Okay. And um, So we call it mini-Neptune well, as opposed to big Earth? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, there is another class of planets also called super-Earths. Really? Those are sort of like one and a half to two times uh, bigger than the Earth. So, yeah, so the, and there is, of course, there is a spectrum. 
But these type of planets are actually quite common, but we don't have it in our own solar system, so it's hard to know, to study in detail, because we don't have them. So this particular one in this star system was, is interesting because it is in the habitable zone. So habitable zone is the distance from the star where liquid wa where water can exist potentially in liquid form. Because it's not so hot that it evaporates and not so cold that it's all ice? Goldilocks zone, exactly. And, uh, and so this is a cooler star. So that means that this planet is actually closer to its star. So it takes about 33 days to orbit once. Now comparison on Earth, it takes 365 days. So Earth is farther away because our sun, our star is warmer. And we are also in the habitable zone. So this was already an interesting planet. And then Hubble Space Telescope in uh, 2019 uh, found tantalizing signatures of maybe, maybe a water ocean there and a thick hydrogen uh, atmosphere. They called it a Hycean exoplanet. And that would be the definition of it, that it has water and it has a hydrogen-rich atmosphere. So there's water on this planet. Maybe. Maybe. <clears throat> and hydrogen-rich atmosphere. So immediately... Why, why does that matter? Well, in terms... Of, well, I'll, I'll come back to it in one second. But that's, but this combination led to potentially... Like, you know, I mean, like, you know, that it could be an interesting place. And so James Webb Space Telescope, it, it, had, it was its major target. And now the first results have come up. And what they are finding is that... And James Webb Space Telescope can actually directly detect the molecules that are in the atmosphere of the planet, which I think if you think about it, it's actually quite incredible. And what they found in this planet, so this is K2-18 small b. B is like, you know, the planet designation. And they found that there is methane in the atmosphere and carbon dioxide definitely in there, which are both, I mean, they could be from natural processes, but they are interesting because uh, these are useful for life. These are also uh, life-oriented, sort of like, you know, um, uh, products of life. Uh, but also they found lack of ammonia. And as it turns out, the combination of methane, carbon dioxide, and, and like smaller quantities of ammonia, that can potentially hint that maybe there is a water ocean over there. Uh, and so this one was becoming really interesting, except for one more thing. Oh, no. You have to be. There we are. We're all excited about life on X2, eight, X-2-18, small b. <laughs> no, but this goes what we way. call What we call our cute, adorable, and, uh, and loving K-2-18, small b. Right, but this is actually goes the other way. There is a hint of a detection of a molecule called dimethyl sulfide, or DMS. And this particular molecule on Earth is actually produced only by life. Only and by what? Life. And this is like from, from, uh, from plankton uh, and the marine environments. And this is actually really interesting. I mean, of course, this is also produced in labs. But I mean, in naturally, it is on Earth. This particular molecule is a byproduct of life. And that's interesting. Now, we don't know if this detection 
is going to sort of like get confirmed or not. And of course, people should remember these kind of detections happen. For example, a few years ago, there was a lot of uh, discussion about Venus uh, in the atmosphere of Venus. There was a molecule of phosphine that was found, but then it turned out, no, there were uh, instrument problems, and maybe there is still phosphine, maybe not, so on and so forth. But right now, this is actually a really interesting exoplanet with a really interesting signature. And we have a telescope, James Webb Space Telescope, which is still orbiting, which is still doing amazing work. And it is scheduled to do a lot more observations of this planet to figure out if this particular molecule, dimethyl sulfide, is actually uh, it's a real detection or not. If it turns out to be real, I think this would be a really interesting place. Do we want to go visit? Uh, no, it's about 100 light years away, so <laughs> we won't be visiting. But I just want to contrast this. That's yes. the reason I wanted to bring up the Mexican mummies or the congressional hearings, which also happened. One of the hearings happened, uh, not hearings, but uh, last week also there was a... Um, uh, sort of like a press conference about uh, sort of like you know, what they have found and they said that they haven't found much. That look how careful astronomers are trying to be. And and by the way... I the astronomers, also, when you're talking about uh, K-2-18b and what they're saying about what they have or have not yet discovered. Right, and, and I would say that even if the detection gets confirmed about this particular life-friendly molecule dimethyl sulfide. I am 100% sure that there are going to be papers on it that will try to explain that potentially with, with non-biological processes. Meaning that there's not life. The meaning that there is not life. Not because they are just like, they just poo-poo every exciting thing, but rather the fact that this kind of discovery is so huge that you want to make sure that you are not finding something that can be explained in a non-biological way, and you yourself, and this is how science works, you yourself want to disprove the thing that you really like because you want to make sure that you are right. All the reasons that suggest that what you've just discovered is something that, in fact, you didn't discover. Right. And, and, and if I can just add, uh, close, that, close that loop, these... Uh, astronomers, uh, astrobiologists, I mean, they would do nothing else than find life. I mean, they would love to find life. And any place they can find evidence for it, they would just love to spend all of their time doing that. Just think about if these claims of UFOs or UAPs uh, and sort of like during the congressional hearings about unidentified aerial phenomenon and potential alien bodies, if they believed that there was much credence to that. Forget about K2, uh, K2-18B and saying, hey, maybe there is dimethyl sulfide or not. They would be spending all of their time really figuring it out of what we have because that would be an amazing evidence. But the fact that most astrobiologists are actually not doing that and instead looking for exoplanets and things like that I think that tells you a little bit about how science thinks about it or how most scientists think about it, uh, despite. So let's spend another minute, if we could, on the photographs that, well, let's put it this way. Dan Torres said to me last week, you've got to look at these photographs. Because, Dan? 
you're talking about the ones from Mexico? Yes. Yes. Uh, they are, looked like uh, aliens that we've seen in the movies. They were like in coffins, like, and I guess this was inside the Mexican parliament building, I think. It was uh, brought in. It was but brought they're, in. They're originally from Peru. And they're there is a whole other Peru. thing, like, you know, that how did they get to Mexico from Peru? Peru. <laughs> we, we don't want teleportation. Right. Uh, I saw it and I sent that to Bill. But I also sent you the planet story, too. So yes, you did. A lot. You did. You, I, you have been totally I, I've redeemed. been on this. I've been on this. Well, mainly because also, Avi, I mean, what you're saying about most astronomers being very rigorous in their standards, there are some astronomers now who want to capture the fame, who want to be in the limelight, who do talk like uh, Harvard professor Avi Loeb, who, who tries to have it really, I think, both ways, where he's trying to maintain the standards, but also being like, we don't know what we have here. And they've been trying to discover that comet that landed in the oceans. It all relates to this theory that you know, um, life is out there and we, we're just not looking for it. And they're super interested in coming to Earth of all places. Right? But, no, yeah. but, but I would say, look, there is a... Uh, so Avi Loeb is an interesting uh, character. And, and I should mention, it's not just fame. There is a lot of money in there too. Uh, and in fact, his, his uh, project is being funded by a crypto uh, billionaire, uh, the scanning of the oceans and things like that. So there is a lot of money and he has explicitly said that he wants to get money because it gets attention for there. So I'm not saying like to enrich himself, which certainly as a byproduct, <laughs> it happens. But there is certainly a lot of uh, money involved in it. Same thing with DOD funding, like, mm. you know, with the UAPs and things like that. There are contractors that are getting a lot of money. So that's a whole other sidetrack of that. But I should mention that there are always been scientists who have made claims that are outside mainstream science, and which is okay. Most of the times, in fact, almost all of the times, those claims turn out to be wrong. That's why we don't really hear about them later. Mm -hmm. But occasionally, once in a million times, it turned out to be right. And you go like, ah! But just because you have a outside the mainstream idea doesn't mean that it's correct. Yeah. But sometimes outside the mainstream ideas turn out to be correct. So I think there is mm -hmm. this element to it. Salman Hamid, before you leave us, is there anything in your opinion to these whatever they are, the mummies in Mexico, that we should think about in terms of extraterrestrial life in your judgment? No. And, and there have been sort of a lot of people have suggested sort of like, you know, what they might be and things like that. There is no evidence for that. In fact, the person who claimed that, you know, that the university had looked at it and analyzed it, the university backed back off from there. They said, well, we were just given a slight sample about for dating, uh, like how old these things are, but not about the whole thing. There is, at this point, there is not sufficient evidence. And this mummy has been around since 2017. By the way, it just made it into the Congress, uh, Mexican Congress, uh, uh, sort of like, you know, last week. But it has been around. I first encountered this in 2017. So again, these stories have been around for a while. So uh, no, uh, that would be my, uh, my estimate about it. And of course, it can turn out to be wrong, as we would say, who knows? But there is no evidence at this point to suggest that this might be a real alien. Mm. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Salman Hamid, astronomer and Hampshire College professor. Thank you so much, Salman. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org slash solar loans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org slash solar loans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. In 2022, Whole Children moved its campus to Northampton. We're continuing the same inclusive programming that we've been offering since 2004 to students of all ages with and without disabilities. After school and Saturday classes for this session run from October 3rd to December 9th. Take a look at the classes we have. Yoga, chorus, dance movement, cooking. Come take a tour. Scholarships available. Wholechildren.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are joined by Bill Dwight, former city council president, longtime city council member in Northampton. And we wanted Bill to be with us today because we want to get his perspective on what has been the vociferous uh, back and forth in the Gazette and online about the new plan for downtown Northampton a person who has been more involved, I think, with Northampton than perhaps anyone else other than the mayors, and I might include the mayors for many, many years. Bill Dwight, what is your view of this plan, this new plan for downtown Northampton? I, I think this plan is actually very good and will actually serve the community in, in, in the ways that it's intended. One, principally offering safety for a larger cohort, and then also uh, opportunity for more public space, more public space to um, to work through. You know, the, the noise and activity that we've seen around this that you just mentioned, um, I was thinking about it this morning. It's identical to the noise and, and drama that we got surrounding um, the issue, the very controversial issue of painting the crosswalk and a rainbow. It was also the same thing that happened when we had a roundabout when we were discussing a roundabout. There were demonstrations and protests. Four years of conversation have been dedicated to this, public conversation and input, and it's still ongoing. But the fact is, the fact remains is what happens, and we fully anticipated this reaction because what happens, you're changing um, or talking about changing what people hold as the iconic image of Northampton, what downtown is for them, even though they may not and know what, And what it looks like. 
and what it looks like and how it behaves. Um, and and we, the same thing happened with Pulaski Park as well, if you'll recall. Where right. now everyone says, thank you for making all those changes to Pulaski Park. <laughs> but someone was saying, you're going to cut down a tree? Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, no, Pulaski right. Park will never be the same. That's right. It was the, the Christmas tree. It had to come down. And that way. And, and I understand because it's a, visceral, it's a visceral ownership that belongs to people. And the reaction is exactly what you would expect because they don't feel they have any agency. And point in fact, this was designed by, uh, uh, well, engineers and designers. Let's, let's be clear about that. But the the elements or contributions were added and enhanced um, by contributions from the public for in four years of public meetings of multiple meetings <clears throat> and with more to come. Right, and and I distinctly remember voting on one of the four plans. I we were yeah. asked our opinion. We the right. public was were, we were asked our opinion. I would like you to address, if you could, Bill Dwight, the two specific complaints about the plan. One is about the bike lanes, and the other is about parallel parking. What's your view? Well, I, I, you know, I think I said this once on the air here before, is that all these structures and designs and elements are not unique to Northampton by any stretch. In fact, they're all over the world and have been existing for quite some time and designed by engineers over time to perfect these things. They work. It works. People parallel park in other parts of the country and other communities. And, and other parts of the city, by the and way. And other parts of the, including downtown, they parallel they parallel park. The uh, Some have argued that the herringbone parking that currently exists is, was a horror show. Who came up with that idea? That's insane. You, you have to back out into moving traffic. Turn lanes, bike lanes, dedicated bike lanes that provide an opportunity for a, a very an actual bona fide form of transportation. This is what I mean. We bikes aren't toys. They aren't. They aren't just for fun. They are actually. They are legitimate forms of of transportation. And providing safe lanes for them is not onerous or a bad idea. And this and the and the traffic and everything else can certainly accommodate. It. What about those who say there are enough bike lanes? You could have places for bikes to be. Uh, locked up at the various places where the current bike path intersect with downtown, and that's good enough. Why do bikes have to come through downtown? Because actually, it's a main crossroad, um, and the fact that we have been over the course of last, oh, I don't know, say 30, 40 years, we've elevated and recognized that bikes are a critical form of transportation, particularly for small regional transport. And to continue to relegate them to back roads or, or you know, a lesser class than cars, then I, I think that the outcome is what you see is frequent bike accidents and and carbon consumption. Bill I, Dwight, I would like to ask you this: There was a big fight in Northampton about whether we would build a parking garage. That's correct. And the parking garage is centrally located with. Uh, egress to all sorts of stores in Northampton. Is the parking garage being overlooked by the critics? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, when we did parking studies, it was revealed that people want to walk no less, no more than 15 feet to their destination. So, yeah, okay. Um, but you don't, you don't reinforce that behavior. You have a parking garage that, by the way, is cheap as bejesus, and you can't, it costs less to park in the garage than it does on the street. And the first hour still is free. It still is free. You can park there for free for the first hour to do your very important business. And I love the sign. 
regardless of the criticisms, where Northampton, where the parking is free for the first hour, and the coffee is strong, and so are the women. Right. That was uh, <laughs> that. That was also controversial too. It was. Yes. But the sign remains, and the parking garage, if anything, is underutilized and available. You can go right to downtown Northampton with your car and have very few steps to walk. Covered parking. <laughs> we leave it there. Bill White, thanks so much Thank for you your guys. time today. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles, or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 Store, full-value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 Store, open right now at whmp.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, whmp.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Five Iranian Americans are free this morning after they were released from detention in Iran and boarded a plane to a military base in Qatar, where they'll be handed over to U.S. officials. Correspondent Cammie McCormick has our top story. Some have been held for years. They will return to the U.S. now as part of a complicated deal. Iran won the freedom of some of its citizens in the release of nearly $6 billion in its assets. A senior administration official says this deal does not change our relationship with Iran in any way. Iran is an adversary and a state sponsor of terrorism. This official says we will hold them accountable wherever possible. The agreement has plenty of critics, among them Jamil Jaffer at the National Security Institute. You incentivize other bad actors, nation states or the like, uh, to think they can negotiate with America and negotiate over American lives, which they should not be able to. Hunter Biden filed a lawsuit against the IRS this morning. The president's son claims two agents violated his right to privacy when they aired his personal tax information publicly. He cites a CBS News interview with one IRS whistleblower. The younger Biden had been expected to plead guilty to misdemeanor charges of failing to pay his taxes on time, but the deal fell apart in court in July. It's day four of the United Auto Workers strike after negotiators reported little progress over the weekend. UAW President Sean Fain tells CBS's Chris Van Cleve. We have a lot of work to do when it comes to wages, when it comes to retirement security. Do you feel like you're finding some places of agreement? We're finding common ground on some things, but we still have ways to go. 
Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin is planning to resume abortions today while litigation continues over a 170-year-old law banning the procedure in most cases. Reporter Bruce Marcus from Eagle River. The abortion rights group made its decision after a Dane County judge said she did not believe the state's abortion ban prevents consensual procedures. Michelle Velasquez serves as Planned Parenthood's legal director. PPWI is committed to providing the full scope of reproductive but the ban is technically still in effect. The new coach of the NHL's Columbus Blue Jackets, Mike Babcock, has resigned before coaching his first game. CBS's Peter King. He's out after a bonding exercise with players that some said crossed the line. Babcock reportedly asked players to show him pictures of their families from their smartphones, sharing his as well. But there was also a suggestion he spent too much time looking at some pictures. Dow down 50. This is CBS News. You need to hire fast and hire right? You need Indeed. Their all-in-one hiring platform helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates efficiently. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Maura Healey is proposing using nearly $300 million to infuse the state's strained emergency assistance shelter system in one-time funds. The money would also be used to close a tax revenue shortfall. Healy filed a more than $2 billion budget last week to close the books on fiscal year 2023 and direct new spending into the shelter state of emergency. The state is currently housing more than 6,300 families in shelters, hotels, motels, and other sites, an increase of more than 60% from when Healy took office in January, according to the Gazette. The Amherst School Committee will meet again on September 26 to interview potential candidates for the Amherst School Committee. How anti-racism policies and protections for LGBTQ plus students could be enacted in the public schools are expected to be among the questions asked of the candidates. Residents have until September 20th at 4 p.m. to submit letters of interest for all three vacancies to the town council clerk. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa has introduced legislation to regulate the future of weaponized robotics. You may have seen the viral videos of the goofy dancing robot dog from Boston Dynamics or a similar robot mounted with an automatic rifle in Russia. As this technology evolves and progresses at a rapid pace, legislators are trying to figure out how to keep their constituents safe. Sabadosa's bill contains provisions that would ban the manufacturing and sale of robots and drones that utilize weapons but make exceptions for law enforcement. The proposed law would also require law enforcement officials to obtain a warrant before entering a private residence with any sort of robotics. If passed, the bill would be the first in the country to address these issues. 
For today, it'll be mostly cloudy with showers, high 66 to 70. Tonight, cloudy with showers, overnight lows 52 to 56. And the outlook for Tuesday, sunshine and clouds, highs in the lower 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. We are joined in the studio by Sarah Weinberger, who is a professor emerita of social work from Smith College. She writes a monthly column for the Daily Hampshire Gazette, and I am so pleased she could be with us because she has a column in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette that I wanted to ask her about, the title of which is Traditions, Meaning, Infuse High Holidays. Sarah Weinberger, why did you want to write this column? And for those of our listeners who haven't read it yet, what's it about? First, I just want to say thank you for having me on. And also, I am not a professor emerita at Smith College. It's Western New England College. So I just wanted to correct that. Okay. Not my first mistake this morning, but we'll <laughs> move right on. I've, uh... um, at any rate, um, uh, there's a number of reasons why I chose to write this column. Um, first of all, the most recent reason is I took a seminar with the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, and it was called the Shofar Project, and it was to help people prepare for the high holidays from a spiritual perspective. And I read this amazing book by Rabbi Alan Liu called, and I always forget the name of it, but it's, it's an incredible book. If you look up Alan Liu, A-L-A-N-L-E-W, you can find it. And he talked about how spiritual preparation and facing the parts of ourselves that we have trouble facing and understanding that we are all good people underneath. And so I had always grown up thinking about the high holidays as a time, looking at our sins and looking at how we were bad and confessing so that we would be inscribed in the book of life. And this really sort of turned a lot of that around to look at ourselves with compassion and understand why sometimes we can't do and behave in the ways that we want to behave. The part of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur that I find so moving um, is that in, in asking for forgiveness, in atoning for our sins, that is something between the person and God. But as for atoning for our sins with people, that's something between ourselves and the other person. You can't go and wipe the slate clean by going to temple or synagogue. That's meaningful to you? Yes, that's really meaningful. And um, in this seminar that I took, we talked about that. And first of all, is the importance of coming together as a community. You will often go to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and find that there's all these people who don't show up the rest of the year, which is fine. But it's because we offer ourselves as a community and, and talk about the things, the places where we miss the mark as a community. But you also need to take the important step of facing your own shortcomings on your own and, and doing it privately. And then asking yourself, what am I going to do about this? And who have I harmed? And addressing that person and talking about the harm you had caused them and asking for forgiveness. But they don't, they're not obliged to forgive you, of course. 
But it's it's really, I think, about honesty as a community, as individuals, and with the people that we've harmed. In your column today, in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, Sarah, you write this. You write about, and you say, as a Jewish person, September signals the approaching high holy day season, beginning with Rosh Hashanah and the, the Jewish New Year. And you say that your brother and you recently reminisced about the New Year's of your childhood. And you talk about missing school was mandatory. And you talk about the difficulties of being, well, at the beginning of the school year, missing school when other students didn't have to miss school. And then you said, you were talking about your father, and you say, quote, I still can hear my father's spirited voice intoning the Hebrew melodies despite losing his family to the Nazis, he could still raise his voice in song. Tell us a bit about your family history and what you mean by losing his family to the Nazis. So both of my parents were from Poland. They didn't know each other before the war. They met after the war. Um, But they both lost significant amounts of their family in the Holocaust. My father had escaped with his father. They left and thinking that women and children would not be harmed. And so they headed towards Russia. And my grandfather turned back, but my father kept going. And um, we don't know a whole, he didn't talk much. He, now I understand he suffered from PTSD. And, but when he come, came back, his whole family had been killed in Auschwitz, except a half-sister that lived in Israel. So my experiences with my father were difficult ones sometimes and because he was depressed. And yet when in the synagogue, he had a gorgeous voice and hearing somehow he called up the spirit that um, transformed him. That's, that's the best word I can use. And it was just beautiful to hear. There's something about not wanting to talk about or remember or relive this experience. I had an aunt, late aunt, married to my biological uncle, whose sister died in Auschwitz, and she never talked about it, and she didn't want to talk about it, and it was just something to somehow try to forget. I think that's generational in some ways, and it's, it's a lost history to me because I would really like to have known more about my aunt's sister and how my aunt escaped to France. My mother, though, did talk about it. She talked about it a lot because my mother was a very optimistic, incredibly resilient woman. And she was able to say to us that if you don't talk about it, then you can't make the world a better place. And if you don't make the world a better place then these things are going to happen again. And we certainly know that they are happening again and again in many places. In your column today in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, Traditions Meaning Infuse High Holidays, you say this, Death is inevitable, but compassion for all living beings, including ourselves, and the ways in which each of us bring light to a broken world give meaning to our fleeting time on this narrow bridge. Explain that, if you would, please. Sure. And by the way, it's a beautifully written column. Thank you. Alan Liu talks about this in his book. And he says that 
all living beings come in, in Jewish tradition from this void. And out of this void comes this narrow bridge called our lives. And the time we spend is a very short time on that bridge before we're back in the void again. Um, and so what he says and what, what really resonated with me is, don't you want to use this time you have in a meaningful way? And um, I had recently heard, and I can't remember if it was in his book or somebody else had talked about if we didn't die, where, how would we be motivated to do important things and to have purpose in our time on earth? And so I think what, what his message is that really resonated for me is that you're only here for a very short time. And yes, it's scary, but you weren't alive once and you won't be alive again. And we have a commonality, this, this sort of divinity, this soul that we share with all living things. And so we need to do things to care for them and to care for ourselves and have compassion for others and use our time meaningfully. And do the Jewish high holidays somehow make that more real, more, more concrete, uh, something that you can feel and touch in a way that you didn't or don't at other times of the year? I think so. I think, you know, we're all sort of centered on this idea of who we are as people and where we miss the mark and how we want to do better. And I don't want to equate this with a secular new year where we're all like making res resolutions to lose weight and to, you know, recycle and to do all those kinds of things. Um, it's much more, how can I be a better person? Not just for others, but also for myself. And I think when you go to the synagogue and you see all the people there who are all here for basically the same purpose, it makes it meaningful. And I just wanna give a little shout out to Rabbi Nancy Flam, who is a local rabbi who did an incredible um, meditation service yesterday, which was something I had not experienced during the high holidays before. And, um, and she also talked about how meditation and, and mindfulness can help us be present for whatever comes our way. And I think that was an important message. Let's leave it there. We have been speaking with Sarah Weinberger. Her column in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette is titled Traditions, Meaning, Infused High Holidays. She is a regular monthly columnist for the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Thank you for this beautiful contribution. Thank you so much for having me, and Shana Tova to everyone. Shana Happy Tova. New Year. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. 
What do a gaggle of klezmer musicians, an Elvis impersonator, and a flash mob of 60-somethings dancing to Bob Dylan have in common? They'll all be at this year's Doozy Doo Parade, marching through Northampton on Saturday, September 23rd. That's right, the Doozy Doo is back for a second year with an even bigger celebration, raising funds for Northampton neighbors to provide free services for area seniors. The party kicks off from Holly Street at 11 a.m., heading up Main Street to Pulaski Park. Join the parade or donate at doozydoo.org. At Greenfield Savings Bank, one of the things we love about living in the Valley is all the locally grown food that's available here. For more than 25 years, a local nonprofit called CESA, which stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, has been promoting locally grown food and supporting farms, farmers markets, and food businesses in our Valley. And to support CESA's mission, Greenfield Savings Bank is giving new customers a CESA canvas tote bag as a thank you gift when they open a new free GSB checking account. There are no monthly fees, no transaction fees, and you get free online banking, free e-statements, free debit card, and free GSB mobile app, including depositing checks from your mobile device. Our existing customers can also get a CESA Canvas tote bag when they enroll in GSB's free mobile banking or sign up for e-statements. So, join GSB and show your support for locally grown food and local banking. Get your CESA Canvas tote bag thank you gift from Greenfield Savings Bank. See bank or visit greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Richie Davis, for 40 years, wrote for the Greenfield Recorder. He is one of the area's, I think, extraordinary writers, and he has a new collection, the third, I believe, in his series of collections of his writings from 40 years with the recorder. This book is titled Flights of Fancy, Souls of Grace, More True Tales from Extraordinary Lives. He will be at the Sunderland Library tomorrow evening for a book reading, signing, and a Q&A at 6.30 tomorrow at the Sunderland Library. Flights of Fancy, Souls of Grace, More True Tales from Extraordinary Lives. I love the cadence. Richie Davis, tell us who's in the book and why you selected the pieces that are in it. Oh, well, we have a a great uh, selection of people in this third book of mine, which is my last book. Um, It's uh, Randy Keeler, uh, for one, um, peace activist, uh, well-known. We have... um, uh, Lucinda Brown, who did a uh, um, restorative justice project. Uh, Jean-Claude Venitali, who was a playwright, well-known playwright. Um, uh, and then we have uh, other folks, like uh, there's a West, uh, young West African refugee living uh, in, from Montague, uh, working uh, to, uh, to raise awareness about young girls in, in West Africa um, and female genital mutilation. Uh, there's a story uh, with uh, Barry Mosier's in the book. Uh, all kinds of folks are in the book. There's a, a uh, master Chinese calligrapher in the book uh, who's no longer with us. Um, but all kinds of, uh, you know, different, different kinds of stories. And is Paul Green in this book? Paula Green is in this book. Uh, it's really more about her, uh, the Karuna Center, uh, and uh, dealing specifically with the political polarization that we are now facing, and and talking to refugees from around the world, and how, uh, what 
there's what they have seen there might come to pass here. Paula Green is famous in this neck of the woods, I think, for her work trying to bring people from Leverett, Massachusetts, together yep. with people from Trump c- country, Kentucky. Um, yep. And it's a fascinating story. And when Paul, and the, we should say the late Paul Green, when she was here with us in the studio, I would shake my head skeptically and said, really, this is going to work? But she actually believed in her heart and her soul and her bones. Because she had was... worked around the world to see it happen. And uh, What's she... the it? What's the it? To see it happen. What to happened? see to see people be able to come together and find common common cause. And Paula was actually in the last book that I did, which is uh, Goodwill and Ice Cream. It's the second book. Um, so uh, that and that story was in there. Um, but the the book also includes. Um, well, there's a, there's a wonderful story there about a, one, a woman who's now 103 years old. She was 97 when I interviewed her, and she lives in Ashfield. Um, her name is Mary Loya, um, and she founded the first uh, the first alternative school in the country, um, alternative high school in Albany, New York. Um, so she's a fascinating woman. Uh, I, I I I can read you uh, you know a, a section. Sure, of, would you like uh, to do that? Short excerpt. Sure, I would be pleased uh, to hear that. Mary Mary Macumbaloya two and a half years shy of a century at the time that I wrote this, admits that trying to remember recent events isn't so good, but when it comes to recalling episodes from years ago, there's little stopping her. At 97, at at nine, she recalls, my father outfitted a Model A Ford truck with iron hoops in a bed and a canvas covered with roll-up windows to keep the rain out and boards to stretch across the seats. All six kids headed out west with her parents and godmother, her mother's best, her mother's friend, Bucky Freeman, for a camping trip just before the Great Depression. I'll never forget, we went through Canada on gravel roads. It was just a terrible racket all the way west to Alberta and British Columbia, but it was spectacular scenery. Louia remembers her brother's fights along the way and the, the way Bucky kept us from fighting because the twins were always punching each other and teasing the girls was she told us stories. It was a wonderful storyteller told us about Birdseed, who was a boy, and his friend, a pirate named Squinteye. The adventures of Birdseed and Squinteye just poured out of her. She was amazing. You are hearing Richie Davis, whose new book is Flights of Fancy, Souls of Grace, More True Tales from Extraordinary Lives. He will be having a book reading and signing and Q&A at the Sunderland Library tomorrow evening, Tuesday evening at 6.30. Again, the title of the book is Flights of Fancy, Souls of Grace, More True Tales from Extraordinary Lives. These, these stories are from his 40, I think 43 years with the Greenfield Recorder reporting on and writing stories about people from primarily Western Massachusetts. I would like to know, Richie Davis, as a writer, whether when you went back to collect these stories, whether you learned something about the people who you had written about or your career that you had had or yourself that you didn't know when you started to put the collection together. I think taking a step back to, to, to do the book, which was the first book and then the second and the third were revelations about how hard it was to do that, 
uh, the editing process and re-examination of the stories. But, but uh, more than that, it was really a, a chance for me to look and see how lucky I was to be able to do, the, do something like this and, and gathering uh, the diversity of stories, uh, the kinds of... Um, I mean, I, I was covering uh, nuclear, nuclear issues and uh, environmental issues um, for, the, for the paper and doing daily stories as while I was doing this. But uh, the gamut of what, what's out there to be written, uh, the stories that are out there and the ones that I was fortunate enough to, to write about and to people to learn about was just so rich. Uh, and just by only by moving back and taking a look at the whole landscape was, was it clear how broad that was. Well, the arc of your career is really interesting. And the way in which you covered so many different stories and so many different people here, I think, brought people into the newspaper and into the community in ways that they would not have been brought into the life of our community without you. One of the stories in this book that I find really fascinating is a story you tell. It's titled Burden Brothers. It's about the famous engraver and artist Barry Mosier. And I'm wondering if you might share a bit of that story with us. What it, what it, what it is? Um, yeah, Barry Mosier had um, uh, had written this wonderful book about um, his experience in growing up in Tennessee in um, Chattanooga and the racism that he found there. Um, and he it was about his bully, being bullied by his brother. Uh, and how he came to terms with that, and how he came to terms with um, his um, the his racism. brother's racism. Yeah, his brother's racism, uh, but also have compassion for his brother. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll I'll read a bit here. Um, uh, let's see. Um, wow, the the really the real epiphany came around. Um, came when Mosier was invited by John, the black chef at the country club his stepfather managed, to visit the Baptist church where he served as a deacon. My daddy would kill me, and you too, Mosier remembers responding, after which it was suggested that he didn't have to tell him. So he drove down to the church where I'm the only white face within a half-mile radius to be greeted by the minister as Barry Holmes identified by the chef using the surname of Mosier's stepfather. No, you don't, the black pastor told him when he went to sit in the pew beside him. No man of God's going to sit out there with all those sinners. You're going to sit up here with me. No sooner had Mosier sat at the dais with the choir behind him and the black congregation seated in front of him and the women adorned with peach-colored, rose-colored, yellow and white hats when he was introduced as a special guest who would lead the Reverend, who lead the church in prayer. Brothers and sisters, we have the Reverend Barry Holmes with us this morning. <laughs> He's going to give the morning prayer. It was wonderful, Mosher remembers. In John's church, I was embraced, not just welcomed. I was embraced. If John had gone to my church, he would have been lynched in the front yard. I left Chattanooga three or four years later. It's a wonderful story. What's the, the title of that story about Barry? Uh, Burton Bridge? Brothers. And it was the burden of brothers and the burden of having a brother who, well, he loved, but who horrified him in some ways. And it's the burden of the, the brotherhood and sisterhood that we're in right now that we have to 
uh, you know, come to terms with each other and figure out how to live together. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Richie Davis. His new book is Flights of Fancies, Souls of Grace. He will be reading tomorrow evening and having a Q&A and a book signing at the Sunderland Library, Sunderland Library beginning at 6.30. This is a wonderful collection. You will do yourself a great favor by going to the Sunderland Library tomorrow evening, Tuesday at 6.30. I'll be, I'll be in Montague next month, oh. Montague Center. Well, let's hear about that, too. Uh, and on the 18th of October, and then at Arms Library in Shelburne Falls on the 19th of October. Well, let's do that again. That went by pretty quickly. Tell us where you're going to be tomorrow evening. Uh, at the Sunderland Library, and then when when and where? Uh, that's 6.30, Montague Center, October 18th um, at 6 p.m., and Arms Library at 6.30 on October 19th. And then it goes on to Leverett in uh, November. And Well, terrific. We're going to have to have you back. Ha! Huh. Richie Davis, thank you so very much. The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Maura Healey is proposing using nearly $300 million to infuse the state's strained emergency assistance shelter system in one-time funds. The money would also be used to close a tax revenue shortfall. Healey filed a more than $2 billion budget last week to close the books on fiscal year 2023 and direct new spending into the shelter state of emergency. The state is currently housing more than 6,300 families in shelters, hotels, motels, and other sites, an increase of more than 60% from when Healy took office in January, according to the Gazette. The Amherst School Committee will meet again on September 26 to interview potential candidates for the Amherst School Committee. How anti-racism policies and protections for LGBTQ students could be enacted in the public schools are expected to be among the questions asked of the candidates. Residents have until September 20th at 4 p.m. to submit letters of interest for all three vacancies to the town council clerk. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa has introduced legislation to regulate the future of weaponized robotics. You may have seen the viral videos of the goofy dancing robot dog from Boston Dynamics or a similar robot mounted with an automatic rifle in Russia. As this technology evolves and progresses at a rapid pace, legislators are trying to figure out how to keep their constituents safe. Sabados's bill contains provisions that would ban the manufacturing and sale of robots and drones that utilize weapons but make exceptions for law enforcement. The proposed law would also require law enforcement officials to obtain a warrant before entering a private residence with any sort of robotics. If passed, the bill would be the first in the country to address these issues. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy with showers, high 66 to 70. Tonight, cloudy with showers, overnight lows 52 to 56. And the outlook for Tuesday, sunshine and clouds, highs in the lower 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Having pain like that and not knowing how you caused it and for how long it's lasting, it's debilitating. QC Kinetics patient Diane Richardson hated not being able to live her life to the fullest due to joint pain. But then she called QC Kinetics, where regenerative treatments helped her pain go away. The result was phenomenal. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in using natural biologics to restore and repair damaged joint tissue. This was a great alternative for me as opposed to going in and possibly having surgery or something else. There was no downtime, and that's 
that's what I love. My life is too busy for me to be sidelined. If you're tired of constant pain from arthritis or injury, don't think the old treatments are the only treatments. Discover regenerative medicine at QC Kinetics. Just to feel good and know that I'm out of pain is the best thing ever. I'm able to do everything that I want to do. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. This is our time with Megan Zinn, writer and editor. The title of the segment is Writer's Block, which is actually somewhat misleading because this is not about a writer's block. This is about a writer's beginning. Right, right. It is about how to create and what is created and what we're reading and why we should be reading it. And I would like to spend some time today, Mm -hmm. Megan, asking you. Yep. What are you reading? And what am I reading? Why are you reading it? Okay, sure. Um, the funny thing is right now, the main book I'm reading because I'm kind of in between novels is um, a um, copy editing guide to copy editing fiction, um, which is a new, um, which is, um, funnily enough, they're... Um, Books are copy edited, fiction books in most trade publications are copy edited based on the Chicago Manual of Style, but they've never put out a guide for copy editing fiction. This is the first time they've had one. It's all, it's really, the main guide is not geared toward fiction, even though that's what all fiction books are copy edited on. So I'm reading that like a novel because I'm a copy editor and that's what I like to do. Um, But in terms of fiction, um, I did just finish... Um, a book, and this is, as, as listeners know, I'm a, I'm a romance novel reader, and this is, uh, the most recent one I've finished is A Caribbean Heiress in Paris by um, Adriana Herrera, which is um, uh, a book about a, um, it's a historical, it's historical fiction, it's about an heiress of a rum distillery from the, the, the Dominican Republic, who is a woman of color, and she goes to the 1879 exposition in Paris, 1879, 89, I'm now blanking on that, exposition in Paris, and, um, has a romance with a whiskey distiller from Scotland, but it's um, the book is interesting, um, of course, because one because it is a the writer is a person of color and she's writing about characters who are people of color. She's also did the research and the history of the history that there were people from the Caribbean at the '89 Exposition in Paris, quite a lot from these new some of them newly independent um, countries like the Dominican Republic um, that um, um, and also. Romance novels, um, historical romance novels, tend to skirt around the issues of colonialism and where the aristocracy in Britain got all this money that they're living off of, which is very often 
plantations in the Caribbean, um, in, you know, based on enslaved, enslaved people. The slave trade as well was, was a huge um, source of income um, in, in Britain at this time. So um, that's a really, um, it's, a, it's a nice combination of a romance novel, but one that doesn't skirt around difficult issues. Do you recommend n novels as a way, actually, of learning history? Absolutely. Tell us more about that. Yeah, um, I, I, a long time ago, I was, in, um, I was an American Studies graduate student planning to be an academic, and that is something I um, really wanted to be part of that work, is using, I was, you know, using literature um, as a way to understand history, in part, for, I think for a lot of reasons. One, the things that were written at that time, you get a snapshot of that history. You can read Jane Austen and get a, a beautiful snapshot of um, the, the, you know, the social mores of her era of the Regency period in England, for instance. Um, but also most historical fiction um, written maybe contemporarily about previous era is extraordinarily well-researched. Um, so you can learn, um, and very often about how people live their daily lives, less maybe about the bigger, broader issues that we might learn about in, in history classes, the, the, the major forces in history moving countries and, and wars, et cetera, and more about kind of daily life, which is what I've always kind of loved in history. Um, and they also, novels are about emotion and about empathy. You, you know, you, you, they are great sources of building empathy um, in a way that... Um, nonfiction history, which I also love, doesn't do in the same way. So I think um, fiction can really bring that into a, a study of the past. You mostly read novels. Uh, yes. You read some nonfiction. Uh, Th this um, is actually the opposite of what I do, which is mm -hmm. I read mostly nonfiction mm -hmm. and yeah. occasionally a novel. And what I was struck by uh, when I was uh, reading Jonathan Haar and Tracy Kidder's books, mm -hmm. uh, um, is that people would say about a civil action or hometown or uh, soul of a new machine, and say, it reads like a novel. <laughs> um, and there are novels that you say, wow, it's so real. It makes me feel it's like a newspaper report mm -hmm. or, or, mm -hmm. or, or a magazine article. And I'm wondering what the crossover is between those two in your opinion, reads like a novel is like a real compliment right, to a nonfiction right. writer. So right. explain that to us. It really, um, I mean, it's kind of ironic. It, it, it shows, uh, I think, in part the um, artificiality of these um, of genre lines and really even sometimes the artificiality between fiction and nonfiction because there's some nonfiction which is a little bit, um, you know, questionable in its um, veracity. Of, often memoirs are about memory and not about, you know, reality. Um, it is funny that um, it, it, it implies that um, most nonfiction is dry and difficult to read, which is not true. Some can be, but that's definitely not true. Um, and it also kind of implies that um, fiction um, is not real or doesn't, doesn't um, you know, function in, in a real world. So I, I do think it's it's problematic. But on the other hand, it is kind of shorthand for saying, um, you know, hey, you only read fiction, but I think you'll really love this book because it reads like fiction or vice versa. When you deal with either YA young adult books mm -hmm. or with children's books, do you have that dichotomy, that division between what's a story and what's real? In other words, where does... There's somehow 
literature morphs into that division at some point more clearly, I think. Yeah. Tell us, tell yeah. us if you would, how you deal with that. I don't actually read a lot of YA and kids' books other than when my kids were little. And I do think that those books tend to be, I think because of the audience they're geared to, they tend to be more cut and dried with their emotions, with issues about fact and fiction, because it's a, a, an audience with a developing brains and developing sense of these worlds. Um, but I actually am not that knowledgeable about particularly um, young adults, even though a lot of adults read young adult these days. I'm not one of them. Another division that is not so clear to no, me. No, very, very unclear. Um, and not one I've, I have a sense of kind of for some people what the difference difference means, but it is very, it is very fuzzy. And I think it keeps getting fuzzier. There are young adult books that are incredibly tough subjects they're addressing, um, stuff that is more violent than I want to read sometimes. Um, this, this movement, I think, around like the Hunger Games towards dystopia is not, it's not my genre. So um, I'm sometimes, um, I, there were books that I read out loud to my kids where I um, found myself regularly stopping and saying, is this okay? Do you want me to keep going? Is this too scary? Um, uh, um, Cornelia Funke's, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name of the book, um, Inkheart, a great book, but I was reading it to maybe my 12-year-old and it was scaring the heck out of me. And I'm just like, are you okay, kid? Do you want me to keep reading? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> How do you pick your next book uh. to read? Uh, it varies a lot. Um, I often, I like, I like sometimes when it's picked for me. Um, I'm, I've been in a book club for years and years and years, and sometimes others as well, but one that's been going on for about 25 years. This is a local book Yes, club? this is local. Um, although we've been doing it via Skype since the beginning of the pandemic, and um, one of our members has since moved and so continues to participate, because Skype, I mean, um, and Zoom. Um and so very often, um, my books are dictated by what we've chosen for the book group, which is sometimes something I've suggested, but often not. And I love that. I kind of like an assignment. Um, I, Do you look at uh, either the New York Times or the Boston Globe or any one of the literary magazines or periodicals say, there's a book I'd like to read? And where do you f find yeah. the next book? Um, it's it's a, such a, a, a wide range of things. I do pay attention, and particularly because I, you know, I'm on the radio talking about books. I do pay attention to what's coming up, what's hot. Although very often it's um, because I'm looking to interview maybe a writer coming to town. I'm looking at who's coming to um, Odyssey Bookshops or Broadside and about what they're promoting. So I think more often I'm less likely to go to the New York Times or the Boston Globe, and I might more likely go to our local bookstore and see what's um, on display or who's coming to to um, speak there and read from their books or who they're promoting um, is, is very often how I will find things. Okay. Uh, this is not a which child do you love best <laughs> question exactly, but who are your favorite authors? Oh, gosh. Um, and th that, you know, um, that is... Definitely don't have any problem um, um, separating which, which child I love best with that. Um, but I've got a lot. Um, and I would separate those, you know, even though I don't like the separations. I do. Um, I read a lot of lit fic. Um, and I read a lot of um, things I don't think fit in, neatly into that category. And I read a lot of romance. So in terms of um, lit fic, which would be literary fiction, 
My all-time favorite is Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silko, which is a book that came out, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, and a book I did a lot of my graduate work on. I've, I've read a lot of um, Native American authors in graduate school, and she um, she's a Laguna Pueblo author, and um, that's one of my favorite books. Um, I love Richard Russo, who we had on the show recently. Um, I love uh, John Irving, and, um, you know, in terms of... Um, you know, historical author, older authors, you know, um, I love um, Dickens, I love Jane Austen. Um, and in terms of, you know, romance novels, which I, you know, kind of separate out, um, there's um, great um, historical writer, historical fiction, like um, Lisa Kleypas and Sarah McLean, and contemporary people like Ellie Hazelwood or Christina Lauren. Um, it's a long list. I couldn't narrow it down to one. Okay. Leave us with this. One thing that you've told us about on this show mm -hmm. is the uh, recent uh, uh, expansion of publication of authors who are BIPOC. Yes. Um, and I wish you would give us some insight into that. Yeah. Well, I, one thing I did want to mention is there's um, a kind of a cool effort um, started by some BIPOC authors called 23 for 23. Um, which is to encourage people to read at least 23 books in 2023. Um, it's, a, it's getting a little late for it, but um, to um, of um, books by BIPOC authors about BIPOC characters. Not entirely. I mean, there can be um, characters from all sorts of backgrounds in the books, but but primarily about um, BIPOC um, uh, characters. And then to um, get on social media and tweet about it, to, not tweet, um, to talk about it on like Instagram and Facebook and to use the hashtag 23FOR, well, it has to be hashtag 23FOR23, 23423, and do a little review. And um, I actually, you know, I, I learned about this in September, but I went back and I'd already read 20, so I was feeling like pretty good about myself. Um, but um, it, it is really important for all of us to... Um, highlight um, books by BIPOC authors and talk about them and make sure they're being purchased and or bought, taken from libraries and read and passed around. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Megan Zinn. This has been Writer's Block. Thank you so much, Megan. Really appreciate you being with and all your time and insights. Thank you. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to three Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to three Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. 
PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Technicians, this is your chance. Get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus at Gary Rome Hyundai or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. Be part of the family and receive truly exceptional compensation and full benefits. Join the Time Magazine's National Dealer of the Year team with a proven track record of team members averaging over 10 years at Gary Rome Hyundai. Technicians get up to a $5,000 sign-on bonus or refer a technician to get a $2,500 referral fee. To learn more and apply, go to GaryRomeHyundai.com family. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to the studio the former president of Northampton City Council, longtime city councilor Bill Dwight, because we want to have from Bill his perspective on what is a seems to be a raging debate. I'm not sure if it really is among most people, but certainly as presented in the Gazette, there are lots of people who are upset and or defending uh, the recent design or the mo- for the changes to downtown Northampton. And I'd appreciate your perspective on that. Bill Dwight. Uh, thank you, Bill. I, I'm in favor, first of all, we'll just start off with that. I'm in favor with the Main Street redesign. I mean, you know, if I were king of the world, I would... Uh, I'd probably do some things differently, but the thing is, is this a, a design by consensus, but it's also a design by engineers, um, and it's, it is, an, uh, there's an opportunity that Mass uh, Department of Transportation is affording us by granting us a, a, a significant amount of money that we wouldn't otherwise see, and that we're not going to see, and we're talking about redesigning a city, not for next year, not for what it's going to look like in the next five years for that matter, it's what it's going to look like going into the future 30 plus years maybe. Um, we're, we all recognize that we're in a, a point of flux and change. And the, the fact is, is that we need to accommodate that. We need to accommodate the issues surrounding climate crisis, uh, how uh, retail economy is changing, and, and also what it means to be a town center, a community center where, where we congregate, the commons, if you will. So, and as you would expect, you're talking about something that represents to people who live in Northampton and even it's turned out if you read the papers, uh, surrounding communities, what Northampton means to them, their, you know, their sense of ownership for it. And any, we anticipated the fact that this was going to be a significant change and that change will be met with trepidation, we'll call it, I guess, just to be coy. And, and um, the, the reaction is not unlike what we expected. We've been talking about this for four years. And when I say we, I'm talking about the entire community along with the planners and designers. And uh, there's been a significant amount of input and the consensus is to, you know, we need to accommodate the space for the businesses, but I would argue more importantly for the people, for a congregate point, a commons for people. And uh, Northampton <laughs> has been identified by the DOT as being, and particularly that stretch of road on Main Street, as being one of the more hazardous uh, stretches of road in, in the western part of the state. 
uh, resulting in frequent accidents and some that are tragic. And so you combine all those along with uh, a history, a long history of engineering design that's been played out over the world and even in the state of Massachusetts. And they apply these uh, standards that work, that work, that diet down uh, traffic conflicts, protect pedestrians, and then also promote um, the use of, in, in this case, uh, that you hear some of the pushback on uh, introducing bicycles downtown. Well, one of the complaints that's been made is that there's going to be disruption to businesses during the construction process, and mm -hmm. the businesses just barely survive COVID, and they may not be able to survive the construction. How do you respond to that complaint? No, I, I, I think that's a legitimate concern. It's absolutely a legitimate concern. Um, the fact is, is that we can't be paralyzed by that concern. The fact is, is that yes, those, there will be businesses that will close as a result. They may be closing anyway. COVID was pretty brutal, particularly for bricks and mortar stores that sell items that you can purchase online. That's been a tough competition for them. They also, uh, a lot of these businesses actually endure, um, pretty onerous rental agreements and, um, uh, from the commercial property owners in downtown Northampton. It's been uh, established at one point that we have comparable um, commercial rental rates with Newbury Street in Boston, but we don't have the the fiscal vibrancy that Boston has that would actually make that legitimate. But the fact is, is that those are real pressures um, that's being experienced by those stores. The... If they're able to survive these um, these changes, I suspect, I believe that it will actually enhance their, their prospects when uh, on the other side of it because what they rely on is customers. And if you have a community where it's a destination point where people like to congregate, those are customers. That's, that's actually a, a plus. And maybe they would prefer to hang out downtown Northampton, dine, do other things, and then also shop at these places rather than go back and click their Amazon app. And p people look will look to downtown Northampton not only for a shopping experience but for an experience. You come, you walk, you meet people, you uh, see the sights, you see what is attractive in downtown Northampton, you go for a drink, you go for a meal, uh, you go for a show. I mean, that's what it seems to me is more likely to be the vibrancy and the economic drivers for Northampton 10, 20 years from now than brick-and-mortar stores. That it, you're absolutely right, and it's what has been. The bricks-and-mortar stores uh, thrived here because that Northampton presented that and may still and may still depending on what they're selling yeah, absolutely but and not I, but not so much the the hardware essentials not on Main Street no and and we, as I said that identifies the flux that I'm talking about and that's always going to be painful and it's also always going to be met with some resistance and I, I'm you know I I actually understand and I think if I owned a business I mean look I'm 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 a survivor of a business that uh, thrived at one point and crashed because things changed. There were We're talking about newspapers? Video. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it was, it was, and it's much lamented that it's since 
passed almost 20 some odd years now. The fact remains is that what people miss the most was the opportunity to congregate and talk and be with other people. And, and that was reinforced as we emerged like cicadas from COVID. One other aspect of this that's gotten a lot of attention is whether or not there has been the opportunity for public input. And a lot of people are saying, no, no one was consulted. And I am wondering how you respond to that particular criticism. Well, I, honestly, that happens after every time a similar initiative occurs. That there have been meetings starting in 2020. That's um, we're going on to four years now where these conversations have been had. And it's been input invited by the community, a lot of participants uh, when during the uh, pandemic, of course, even more participants because they were able to uh, participate online. So it, it, that's actually kind of a red herring. Um, but I understand because the people who were objecting for the most part uh, weren't, didn't participate at that time for whatever reason. But the fact is that opportunity was present, will continue to be present. As, as we plainly see, people have expressed their theories and ideas on uh, through the Gazette, on social media, on the station. Um, it, it, is, it will continue to be a, an ongoing public process and discussion. Which you think is to the good? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's painful and difficult. I mean, you know, in an autocratic society, they would uh, just one person would say, this shall be done and it will be done. But no, this is the way we do things. Bill Dwight, former president of Northampton City Council, thank you so very much. Thank you, Bill. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 8.15, 12.15, and 4.15. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. It's family, fun, and football Saturday, September 23rd as UMass football is turning McGurk Alumni Stadium maroon. The first 2,000 fans receive a free maroon Massachusetts football rally towel to cheer on the Minutemen. Kickoff for UMass football against New Mexico is set for 3.30 p.m. with parking for tailgating opening at 11.30 a.m. For tickets, visit umassathletics.com tickets. We can't wait to see you on September 23rd for a maroon out at McGurk. Go you! WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 o'clock.